American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. In part one of this podcast, Kevin Kenny of Boston College speaks to New York City teachers about the demographic impact of Irish immigration on Ireland and the United States. He discusses how Irish immigrants were both perpetrators of racism and victims of prejudice. This talk took place on December 13, 2007, at the Graduate Center. Okay, so what I'm going to be doing today uh, is, um, we have actually about an hour and a half uh, together, we'll take a break, uh, two-thirds of the way in, uh, but I want to give you a bigger picture context for the history of Irish immigration, and especially the question of race uh, in 19th century uh, American history, and a lot of it emerges actually directly out of the questions we were asking or looking at this morning and the case study of uh, five points. And we're going to work with some images, which I'll uh, put up uh, in half an hour or so, and we'll try and interpret those images together, then maybe take, take a break at that point, and then uh, I want to get in and offer you uh, some interpretations of, of, of uh, race in 19th century American history. So race is the topic, race and immigration, um, with the Irish as a case study. And I think race, uh, of all the themes in American history, is the one that's most likely to take us to the heart of the matter, from the uh, first encounters um, of Native Americans with Europeans in the uh, early colonial period, through slavery, the Civil War and Reconstruction, through uh, Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Movement, right through the uh, multicultural history of immigration uh, to the uh, multiracial present. So I think it's in that context that I would situate our subject. If we look at the Irish uh, in that history, we have to look at them in two ways, and this is what we'll be doing today. Um, the one, one is as perpetrators of racism in the 19th century. Uh, the Irish immigrants gained uh, an unenviable reputation for anti-black and anti-Asian racism in the 19th century. So I want to look at, at that side of the story today. Uh, but we also need to turn that around and look at the Irish as victims of cultural prejudice, forms of prejudice that some people uh, call racial. Um, we, we want to leave that as a, an open question today and look at uh, that question, look at some evidence um, so the Irish as perpetrators, the Irish as victims, and that's our dual focus when we look at the question of race uh, in the 19th century. One distinction uh, that might be useful to make, and my thinking on this changes all the time, and it's what I really want to talk with you uh, today about, is uh, can we talk about cultural prejudice in certain forms, often to do with words and images and negative sentiments, so cultural prejudice, uh, bad things that are said about people. Uh, can, can we talk about that on the one hand and more systematic forms of racial discrimination on the other hand? By systematic, I mean something along the lines of discrimination that's written into law. Uh, give you one example. In our field of immigration history, uh, if you were an Asian immigrant in the United States, 
believe it or not, and most people don't believe this the first time they've heard it, if it's the first time, but believe it or not, you could not become naturalized as an American citizen between 1790 and 1952. So that's what I would mean by discrimination written into law as distinct from maybe um, a slur or an epithet that you might direct at, at an ethnic group. Uh, and we can talk more about the Asian uh, case uh, today. Okay, so what I, what I will do is give you firstly uh, um, sort of big picture general context for Irish immigration in the 19th century. Uh, then we'll take a look at some pictorial visual evidence uh, of prejudice, of, of racialism, race in uh, the 19th century involving the Irish. Um, and See how that goes. Uh, I, want, I want to work with you on trying to figure out uh, how does that make, make sense and how might we use it in a, in a classroom. So the scale of uh, emigration from Ireland uh, is our starting point, and that scale is truly extraordinary. Do you know, roughly speaking, uh, how many people live in Ireland today? Or roughly speaking, uh, what size Ireland is geographically compared to uh, say an American state or region because these are go good places to start uh, West Virginia, West Virginia. <laughs> Ireland is about the same time as West Virginia it's actually closer to the size of Maine which sounds much bigger than West Virginia but it's not um, but that's the scale we're talking about West Virginia, South Carolina, Maine in, in other words uh, Ireland is geographically about the size of a, a smallish uh, American state um, how many people live uh, in the, on the island uh, today? Again, roughly. Um, uh, uh, getting up to six now, because interestingly, Ireland, Ireland is now a nation of immigrants. Something else we could talk about. Lots of immigrants are moving into Ireland instead of out of Ireland. Population is growing for the first time since the famine. Six million. But six million still isn't all that many. Uh, um, so, uh, small state, six million people. How many Irish people have moved out of that location and settled, let's say, in all countries abroad uh, in the last couple of centuries? If you've been at this presentation before, uh, uh, don't answer. <laughs> You'll spoil my dramatic effect. Um, but same amount. It's, it's, it's bigger. Uh, it's about 10 million people. Uh, same, where the same amount comes in is if we look just at the United States. If you look just at the United States since 1920, about 6 million Irish people uh, have come uh, and settled in this country. That's about the same number as live there today. The number who have scattered globally, within, usually within the British Empire, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, and Britain itself, uh, is almost twice the population. Uh, of Ireland. Now that, that is not just extraordinary, it's unprecedented, it's unique. There's no other country in Europe that lost population uh, in uh, that way. Um, most of them came to the United States. Uh, America is part of Ireland's identity in that sense. There's no Irish family historically over the last two centuries that was not touched by emigration that did not have people here in, in the uh, in, the, in the United States and historically there's been a very close relationship consequently between the homeland and uh, um, America.
The only countries uh, that exceed Ireland in sending migrants to the United States, there are only three countries that do, um, and they are, um, well, what would you say? And it's not, it's not the 20th century migrations, huge migration coming in from Mexico today, but you have to look historically over, over the centuries. Uh, what would you say are the other countries that send? Yeah, Germany's num number one. More Americans would claim German uh, descent uh, than, than any other. Uh, Britain, and then Italy and Ireland are about the same. Of course, the populations of those countries I've mentioned are 12 to 15 times greater than Ireland's, which again underscores the, the uniqueness of the case. Um, when the federal census in uh, 1990 asked Americans to identify themselves, to, to choose a primary ethnicity, um, 44 million, I believe, either 40 or 44 million uh, chose Irish, which means one in six Americans said, I'm Irish. Now, that doesn't mean that you had four Irish grandparents, um, but it does mean that if you've if you got to choose and say who you are, you're going to say you're Irish. Those figures were always a little bit suspect, I thought. I wasn't sure what they measured. Certainly, it was hip to be Irish in, in 1990. It should have continued. It should have become even hipper in the 90s. Uh, but the, the numbers went down. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. The question is, does that, does that include Ulster? I, uh, I will treat Ireland and everything I'm saying today as, as just a geographical entity. Uh, with ostensible neutrality, I'm saying that. Um, uh, just an island from which, pe which people left and they came here. Most of them before the 19th century, which is our period. Uh, if anybody ever asks you in the classroom, what about the Scotch-Irish? They're less likely to do that in New York th than down south. But if they ask you who were the Scotch-Irish, uh, they were Protestant-Irish who came in the uh, 18th century. Most Irish who came came from the northern province of Ulster in the, in the 18th century. So, in, in 1850 and 1860, which is the period roughly when we're talking about, um, if you look at New York City, half the population of New York City is foreign-born, and half of the foreign-born are Irish. So that would mean that a quarter of all New Yorkers, one in every four New Yorkers, are uh, born in Ireland. That doesn't, even, that doesn't include the American-born children that we saw in the census, just the immigrant generation. So one in every four are born in Ireland. Same thing in Boston. Uh, one in every four Bostonians in Irish is, is Irish in 1850 and 1860. Same thing in Philadelphia. One in every six, 16% of the population is foreign-born um, Irish. Looking at those figures from the Irish point of view, and I'll, I'll stop bombarding in facts and figures in just a moment, uh, uh, but they're, they're useful benchmarks. Uh, 1860, for every uh, Irish-born person in the United States, only five remained at home. So for every Irish-born person in the United States, there were five Irish-born people living in Ireland. And actually, that process reaches its all-time uh, peak at the end of the 19th century in 1890, two out of every five Irish-born people were living abroad somewhere, most of them here in the U.S. Two out of every five were living abroad somewhere. Uh, the largest uh, Irish city in the world was, of course, New York. Uh, there were more Irish-born people living in New York than in either Dublin or Belfast. 
And if you include the native-born, uh, the offspring of the Irish immigrants, uh, then New York exceeds Dublin and Belfast combined, the two, the two largest cities. So that's the, the scale of, uh, of what we're talking about. The Irish, uh, in the period we're dealing with in, in, in this uh, workshop today, were the single largest immigrant group in the United States in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s. So for those four decades, despite the small size of the population and the tiny geographical location, the Irish were the single largest group. They made up one-third of the immigrants in three of those decades. And in the 1840s, which is the decade of the Great Potato Famine, the Irish made up 45% of all immigrants. That's one in two uh, to, to round it off one in every two immigrants coming into the United States in the 1840s, the period just before Tyler Anbinder is, is writing about, uh, is uh, Irish-born. Now, one, one thing that might uh, arise in a, a classroom conversation when we talk about the contemporary relevance of this is to think, well, where, where does this wave of immigration uh, we're looking at, uh, where does it fit into the larger uh, context of American history. You could say that there have been four uh, great waves of immigration uh, into the country. Uh, the first is, is uh, everything up to the revolution, which, which is uh, a wave that you might describe as conquest, colonization, and settlement. It's, it's uh, the take, takeover of the so-called New World and then the population of that world in the 18th century, mainly by German, Irish, and uh, English settlers. If we look uh, at the period of the Republic, the United States, uh, there have been three great waves of immigration. The first is the one we're dealing with today. It's the, the Irish one. The second is the classic period of uh, immigration, which is the Ellis Island period, 1890 to 1920. Um, we, historians usually use the language for the first one, the old immigration, mainly German and Irish. Uh, the second one, the new immigration, not very imaginative, but we're following the language of contemporaries who uh, said, well, these, these immigrants coming in in the second period, they're mainly Italian, they're Jewish, they're Slavic, they're Russian. Uh, they're different, they're new, so they're the new immigrants. And then since, since 1965, and then especially uh, in the 80s, 90s, and this decade, uh, we have the third uh, genuinely global uh, wave of uh, immigration that you uh, all know about. Uh, let me ask you again, uh, looking at those three waves, uh, which do you think is, was the um, greatest? And I, I'm phrasing the question a little bit vaguely because there's more than one answer. It depends on how you look at it. Uh, but wh which, is, which is the greatest wave of immigration into uh, the United States? Yeah. Well, I know the peak year was 1907. Peak year is 1907. That's very good. And what would you mean by peak year? That was when most immigrants who ever committed one year came in. Right. So that's southern and eastern Europe. Yeah. So that's the... the um, <coughs> Uh, the most immigrants coming in, that's what we would call uh, uh, gross numbers. The actual number of immigrants coming in, you'd have over a million uh, coming in a year at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, the first two decades was interrupted by World War I, but especially the first decade and then after World War I, over, let's say, around one million a year coming in. Uh, what else can we say about measuring the uh, peak of, of immigration? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, that's, and th that's the key distinction, is, is, is gross numbers and then comparison to the population as a whole. Uh, if we look at gross numbers, just the, the, the total number of actual arrivals per year, um, the peak is 2007. It's right now because we have roughly the same number of immigrants coming in as we had 100 years ago, but we have between 8 and 12 million undocumented immigrants as well. So if you combine the two figures, the, the peak in uh, gross numbers is today. That's one way of looking at the figures. The other way to look at the figures is to say, uh, what about immigrants as a percentage of the population? Immigrants, uh, what, and what that measures is, is the immigration rate, the rate of immigration rather than the number of immigrants. Uh, the immigration rate actually, uh, for a single decade, reaches its peak uh, just when, when um, this um, lady here, Alison, uh, just when you mentioned around 1907, uh, that's as a percentage of the population. Um, if you take a two-decade unit, a 20-year period, then the peak, the all-time peak of the immigration rate is the 1840s and the 1850s, when the Irish are coming in. So the, the immigrants as a percentage of the population um, reaches its all-time peak in that if you average it out over the, those 20-year uh, period. Another, another way of putting that more, more simply and dramatically is that the Irish are everywhere. Um, and the nativists notice that, and they don't like what they see. And we saw that in the video this morning. Okay, so you've got the peak, you've got the rate. Now, the, re the reason those numbers uh, uh, um, come out differently is simply that the population of the United States today is, is what? Call it 300 million. We could, we, it's a nice round figure. Uh, uh, 300 million. Population 100 years ago was about 75 million. The population uh, in the period of five points, which I'll get right back to now, was only 23 million in 1850. You, you had 23 million people living in the United States in the 1850. So although the numbers of immigrants was lower, the rate was higher. And then if you add to that the regional and urban concentration, where you've got one in every four New Yorkers Irish-born, uh, then from the nativist perception you'll have a problem. I saw another hand. Yeah. Birth rates for immigrants in these periods? At the time immigrants were coming, no. That would be a, a quick answer, but we could talk, talk more about that. I don't have figures on, um, on that. Now, the Irish uh, come from an overwhelmingly rural setting. The country is 90% or more of the people in that country work the land, such as it is. Uh, virtually none of them own the land. They pay a small amount of rent if they pay it at all. And they subsist, as you know, in, in the 30s and 40s on potato cultivation. They're sort of just getting by. They come to the United States and they become... Uh, not only very urban in their settlement patterns, but as far as we know, the most urbanized of Americans. 
by 1870, three-quarters of all Irish-born people are living in towns and cities compared to one-quarter of the American population. I'm curious about that. Yeah. Why Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, why the Irish who had a basically agricultural background would shun farming? Now, I have lots of answers to that, but I'd rather hear yours or, or others. Um, there, there are a couple, a, a couple of good answers to that, I think. Um, anyone have any ideas? Why would you have a heavily uh, rural people who settled in... So factory jobs were available, employment was readily available in cities. Okay, that's certainly part of it. Um, yeah. I, I think that's especially important. They didn't have the capital. Uh, the two main immigrant groups, other than the Chinese, who are coming into the United States at this period, Irish and German, the Germans, by and large, they'll come in, whether through New York or New Orleans, and they'll penetrate into the interior and set up on, farmer, on farms. Uh, why? Because they had the resources, the capital, and because they had some farming experience, agricultural experience, that was at least useful to them. Um, the Irish who come here are the poorest of the poor. They're the poorest uh, white Americans that have ever been seen in the United States. They have been farming on as little as a quarter of an acre of land to support a family off potatoes. And, you know, the catchphrase, 40 acres and a mule, you're going to need at least 40 acres of land to do anything uh, on this side. So they're, they're coming in without resources, without skills, without experience uh, in that type of agriculture. Um, that's certainly uh, a part of it. Other, uh, yeah? I think the lack of capital is, is the key point because the re some Irish did uh, uh, move on. Uh, New York was the biggest single Irish enclave. Some did move on, but you couldn't move on unless you had the resources to do so. All I'm talking about is a train ticket. Then you need implements, you need tools, you need uh, money to get started. A farmer, of course, uh, you, you sow the crop and then wait. You've got a you know a six to twelve month gap depending on, on what you're doing before you'll get any. Uh, payback pay, pay on the investment. The Irish uh, that we're talking about, and I think it's clear from the readings, uh, especially in the famine period, the Irish we're talking about were lucky if they could even make it this far. And they very, very often arrived with, with, without resources, without money of any kind, without, without contacts. So it's a very disadvantaged, almost refugee group. Yeah. They take the, take the jobs that nobody else wants. One of the reasons why that census that we looked at would have so few male figures present, uh, that we, we, we're in it to speculate that the census doesn't tell us, but um, it could be that the male breadwinner, head of household, was um, away at the time the census uh, taker came. The reason he'd be away is he's likely to be working on a railroad, public works, canal, 
or mining project where you follow the work, you literally follow the work as, as you do it, uh, you're also more likely to be killed in industrial accidents if, if you do that, and you're also more prone, I think, to just often abandon uh, the household. Yeah. Being that they uh, probably oppressed by the English landowners, yeah. could they have also developed a distaste for that type of work? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you raised that because I, I think uh, it's not just that they were oppressed uh, by, by Irish landlords and had a really miserable experience of rural life, as many other European immigrants did. Look at the Italians from the Mezzogiorno from the south. They did not, never wanted to go to the land again, um, and so they settled in cities. Immigrants tend to settle in cities, um, but, but they had been through the famine. And if you think of what the famine is... Uh, with, the, with the, not just a one-off failure of the potato crop on which everything depends, but repeated year-by-year year, uh, failure of the crop, what, what, you're at, what you actually have is almost a collapse of your view of the world, a collapse in well, your sense of this is how things are meant to be. I mean, one of the things that's going to happen is the potatoes are going to come up uh, an early crop in early summer and then a full crop in, in the summer, in, at the end of summer. That's the way the world is. Well, the world no longer is, is that way. Uh, I think that even has very big implications for people's religion and the decline of sort of the predictive power of, of popular religion and a move into a different form of Catholicism. So all of that is, is, is certainly um, uh, going on. Now, so the Irish become urban... Uh, yeah. Uh, rough and ready for the 19th century, about two to one male in the pre-famine period. In the famine period, anybody who could come came uh, because it has a refugee sort of scramble status. But then people die on the ships, you know, or, or uh, people die of disease when they get here. Um, what's very interesting uh, is af in the period after the famine, um, the sex ratios are equal between men and women, uh, and most of the women are young and single. And that is unique in uh, immigration history, certainly up to that point. You do have other groups, uh, for instance, Jewish Americans, where large numbers of women are coming, but they're married. In the Italian case, it's mostly male, but you, uh, you, you have smaller numbers of women. But again, they'll be married. The idea, uh, say, in, in Sicily, in southern Italy, of a woman going out on the piazza without a chaperone, uh, would have been scandalous. But these are Irish women who are alone, single, average age, 20, 21, getting on ships and crossing the Atlantic and then meeting relatives here in, in New York or in Boston and, and getting jobs. It's part of a slightly different story. But the figures are rough and ready uh, uh, as, as we uh, have them. So the Irish become urban pioneers, uh, settling in, in five main uh, places in the Northeast and the Midwest primarily. Uh, they're in, in order of size uh, in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, and then San Francisco. Uh, those are the, the, the largest concentrations of Irish populations. But it's always, nearly always in uh, cities and small towns that they uh, settle. Here in New York, the poorest of the famine refugees uh, settle in shanty towns uh, in the uh, parts of Manhattan that are now uh, Central Park South and over down as far as um, St. Patrick's Cathedral, none of that was developed as the city proper. There was a huge escarpment 
that you had to climb up to get over and in, and that's where some of the Irish live. Some of the Irish who lived there were, were George Washington uh, Plunkett and, and uh, Boss Croker, who were two famous Tammany uh, bosses at the, at the end of the century. Uh, they concentrated very heavily in Lower Manhattan, First, Fourth, and Sixth Wards, uh, uh, the bloody old Sixth, as it's uh, uh, called by nativists at the time. And the Sixth Ward is, of course, the home to uh, Five Points. The question of the precise location of Five Points came up in discussion, roughly Chambers Street area. Is that does anyone know City Hall? Uh, and it was the intersection. Uh, uh, Unbinder's book will have the rest of that, but uh, uh, that, that part of, uh, um, of Manhattan. Now, what's interesting um, is at first, um, in five points, not in the selection read from Unbinder, but a little bit earlier in the 1820s, 1830s, um, the Irish and African Americans uh, tended to uh, live in that neighborhood together on relatively harmonious uh, terms and in fact intermarrying to some extent but uh, occupying some of the tenement housing that we've uh, uh, read about for today and some of the less desirable uh, tenement uh, housing. Um, by, the t by the 1850s, which is mainly when that chapter concentrates on at least the reference to African Americans in that chapter is the 1850s, the Irish have driven the blacks out. There have been at least 2,000 at the beginning of that period. There are fewer than 200 left by the 1850s, and they're very rigidly segregated, as Anne Binder said. Um, the historians looking at that have seen sort of, a, sort of um, a missed opportunity of kinds in that here were two of the most disadvantaged groups in American society who once appeared to be getting along, but it didn't work, and what you have instead of uh, cooperation is the hardening of racism with the Irish going in one direction and African-Americans continue, <coughs> continuing to be discriminated against. Um, that is the starting point for a debate in, in the history um, called How the Irish Became White, uh, which we can talk about in, in question time uh, if you want to. Now, we have all sorts of descriptions of uh, five points. You'll get them in, in Anne Binder's book. Another good place to get them, if you like that sort of description, you have to take it with a grain of salt, is Charles Dickens. Uh, his book, American Notes, is really the original source for the description of five points as a den of iniquity. Uh, what we have to figure out, if we look at five points, I mean, there's information in the census to do with the occupations that people had. Uh, there have been archaeological digs. Uh, that, that show the, the type of things that they owned. Uh, we've opened up emigrant savings bank records to see how much money they were putting by. Uh, and those are the types of evidence you have to sort of piece together to get a fairer sense uh, of what life in Five Points may, may have been uh, like. Now, the term nativism uh, came up in, in my own discussion uh, this morning as the general reaction to the presence of the Irish immigrants. And what I want to do is um, present to you uh, today three forms of nativism. First, we need to define the term. Uh, nativism is the term we use for intense hostility to immigrants. Uh, usually on the grounds of their foreign or un-American connections. So intense hostility to immigrants on the grounds of their foreign or un-American connections. The idea that they're not like us, uh, that they can't really fit in, 
that they can't be good Americans, they can't be citizens. A classic nativist question, you're bound to hear one soon uh, in the media or in a political campaign is, well, you know, if you don't like it here, why don't you go back where you came from? That's nativism. If you don't like our schools, you don't like our politics, you don't like ideas, well, you know, why did you come here? Why don't you go, why, why uh, don't you go back where you came from? So, uh, three uh, forms of nativism uh, we want to look at, and this is, will lead us into our discussion then of the, the images that I mentioned. Uh, the first is economic, uh, the second uh, is religious, and the third has something to do with race. So let me review the first two of those, uh, and then we'll uh, open this up again. Well, th there are many ironies in, in American history, uh, and several of them do concern uh, nativism. The, nearly every immigrant, by definition, has been a worker. But native-born workers have often been threatened by the presence of immigrants, believing that immigrants uh, drive wages down by working for low wages, that they're used as strike breakers, or in contemporary debates that they're uh, a drain on the economy or social services. You're, you're, I can see from your body language you're very familiar with, with what I'm uh, driving at. Well, that, that runs the whole way through American history. It doesn't just come from organized labor, of course, but organized labor is part of it. Uh, conversely, uh, organized capital, um, uh, big uh, corporate capital, has often been quite content to leave things the way they are because what could be more convenient than a readily exploitable pool of cheap labor? If you, can, if you can pay people low wages and use them as strike breakers and they don't have much choice in the matter, then, well, you don't really want to rock the boat. Uh, and again, that has contemporary relevance that I don't think I need to um, um, spill out. One of the, the great, uh, well, what, what happens is that uh, organized labor such as it is in the 19th century, which are uh, trade unions of uh, skilled workers, craft unions, uh, do tend to um, exclude immigrant workers uh, for, uh, for, from joining their ranks. And by immigrant workers, they tend to mean the Irish. Um, the Irish are the most disadvantaged and the least skilled of all people, all immigrants who, who have come to America. And um, one thing we need to be careful in assuming is that uh, the Irish were therefore, for example, uh, excluded from skilled worker, uh, from skilled work uh, by nativism. It's not always the case because you can't be, can't get a job as a carpenter if you haven't been apprenticed as a carpenter, and you weren't apprenticed as a carpenter in a, in a potato field in Ireland. Uh, and the reason I raise this is that one of the the great um, foundational stories of Irish-American uh, ethnicity, uh, which everyone, um, you know, from the 19th century and on into Sen uh, Senator uh, Ted Kennedy today will tell as a matter of routine, is how they saw uh, no Irish need apply signs when they were growing up. 
in, in their neighbourhood. I'm not sure what, what neighbourhood in Brooklyn or Cambridge Kennedy grew up in, uh, but there were no, uh, no Irish need apply signs there. Now, these are known as NINA signs uh, to some, uh, uh, N-I-N-A, no Irish need apply. Um, the problem with the NINA signs is, is that no historian has ever held a NINA sign in his or her hand. Um, I was asked to um, comment on a paper where a historian was arguing that uh, NINA signs were just a myth. And I, I was really sort of troubled uh, by having to do so because I didn't want to agree with him. Um, and I was telling my students in the class about it, and one, one of the students told me, well, look, uh, uh, I actually have a Nina sign in my in my dorm room, uh, the, or my roommate has a Nina sign, uh, and, and it's in our dorm room. And I said, "Well, where did you get it?" And I said, "Oh, my grandfather." And I said, "Well, could you bring it into the classroom? Because I really need this uh, to, to nail this guy." <laughs> in, in my response, so so he he brought it in, and it was of course it was too good to be true. And the the giveaway was it said Boston Sign Company, and then it gave the date, and the date was. September 1913 or something, but you know, no sign is, is going to leave its date for a historian to use. So you can buy them on eBay for 1999. Uh, <laughs> maybe they've gone down. Uh, so this this other historian, Richard Jensen, made an argument, poo-pooing the whole thing. Now that that leaves you with a bit of a tricky dilemma. I don't think that there would have been much by way of active labor discrimination, and I'm introducing the term discrimination. That's where I'm going with this. Um, in the sense of excluding uh, the Irish from the type of work that they did, which, if they were male in our period, was unskilled menial labor by and large, or if they were female, was domestic service. The reason I don't think that is that there was so much uh, demand in American cities for people to, to build the infrastructure or serve the middle class. And the Irish did that, not because they wanted to necessarily or were willing to, but more because they uh, had to. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't prejudice against the Irish. We're about to move into that uh, area in just a second. Uh, but when it comes to defining discrimination, I, I, what I asked myself was, well, what do I mean by that term? And what I've, all I've come up with so far, and I'd love to talk to you about it, is uh, if you're being discriminated against, uh, well, for me the test is, well, does that prevent you from doing things you otherwise would have done? Okay, it's just a working definition. Uh, does that prevent you from doing things? Let me run through this, and then we'll open If you don't mind, we'll open it up, because then I'm just afraid I'll never get to the, the, uh, the, the center of the, <laughs> uh, the presentation. So that's one possibility, and we're going to open uh, that up for, uh, for discussion. Um, so I don't know that there was a huge amount of that going on in the arena of labor. I think there certainly was some, because I've seen newspaper ads. Here's a newspaper ad from 1853. A uh, woman wanted to do general housework, English, Scotch, Welsh, German, or any country or color except Irish. <laughs> okay? Any country or color except Irish. Does that run counter to what I've just said? Yes. But uh, what, what I'm suggesting is it may not have been universal. But there certainly were ads in newspapers. We've seen them. What we haven't seen is, is the, uh, the Nina signs. Now, the second um, form of... Uh, nativism that I want to talk about and then we'll bring up the images and I hope get back into the conversation uh, um, we were in uh, has to do uh, with uh, Catholicism um, 80 to 90 percent of all Irish immigrants after 1820 were Catholic 
that sounds fine. Uh, but America wasn't. And Protestantism was central to, to, to the culture of America as a democratic republic in the 19th century. It's not until 1960 that that issue is laid to rest uh, when John F. Kennedy is elected president and lays the issue to rest uh, in, in the political campaign. Anti-Catholicism has been described even in the 20th century as the one intellectually respectable uh, form of bigotry. Um, maybe this gets to what Jorge was saying earlier, that you know you have to decode what people are saying. Well, it was okay for a lot of liberal intellectuals in the 20th century to be flagrantly anti-Catholic, because you know Catholicism isn't really American, uh, whereas you had to be more careful on other things. So what are the nativist objections to Catholicism? Well, firstly, um, would the immigrants be loyal to the United States, or would they be loyal to the Pope? It may seem like a silly question, but it didn't seem silly. It wouldn't have seemed silly to the Reverend Peel, I venture to guess. Um, the Pope is a foreign potentate. He's a head of state, but that's not really the issue. Uh, he's a Catholic head of state. He's a Catholic Pope. <laughs> so the question is, uh, these are hyphenated immigrants, Irish-American, on which side of the hyphen will loyalty lie when push comes to shove? Will they be loyal to Washington? Will they be loyal to Rome? There are all sorts of books being published, stories uh, circulating. Uh, Samuel Morse, inventor of the Morse Code, publishes a book called Foreign Cons Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States, which is about a group of Austrian Jesuits who have been sent into the Midwest to infiltrate the Republic. There's the awful disclosures of Mariah Monk, uh, purportedly about a young woman who spent time in a convent in uh, Montreal and saw terrible things going on there. So this is very much part of the cultural milieu in the antebellum era of American society. Second question is, would the uh, Catholic immigrants be capable of thinking independently or were they, or were they beholden to their priests? So would they think independently or would they follow what their priest said? Uh, two aspects of that question. One is the Bible. Um, to, to paint a broad brush stroke historically, uh, Protestants uh, emphasize individual Bible reading and Catholics don't as much. And there is an intermediary between the individual and God, which is the priest. So you usually encounter the Bible not in your own unmediated reading of it, uh, but as a text that is uh, presented and to some extent interpreted uh, on Sundays. Uh, does that matter? Well, from the nativ nativist uh, point of view, it indicates that the priest will control everything else as well, and that they will instruct uh, the congregation from the pulpit on how to vote. And, so, and that explains why uh, all Catholics are voting Democrat. Now, what explains why all um, Protestants are voting Republican uh, is not explained. There, there, there are explanations for this, but it's certainly not uh, the same thing. Um, at a broader level, and perhaps the profoundest critique, though, I think, is if you look at a, at a, a church that has um, a pope, looking at that, triangle upside down now. Uh, it has a pope, it has cardinals, it has archbishops, it has bishops, it has priests, and then somewhere down there is the laity. Um, is that compatible with what the spirit of republican democracy is about? 
does that fit into what we're trying to do uh, in the United States in the new republic? Or could it not be that a much more fluid and open and self-governing structure of, the, of Protestant congregations is just more in tune, more in keeping uh, with what America is about? These are, are the nativist um, uh, questions. And finally, um, why did uh, Irish Catholics want to send their children to their own parochial schools? I mean, after all, uh, one of the crowning glories of the Republic is the creation of a free public school system that anyone can go to. So you've got these immigrants come here and they won't even go to our schools. They want their own schools. Um, why don't they go back where they came from? Now, of course, the Catholic answer is, is that, well, uh, the, school, the school boards are controlled by evangelical Protestants. Uh, there is religious instruction in the school. We want to... Uh, um, of course, we'll go to the schools, but we need to be able to use our own Bible. There's a King James version of the Bible. There's uh, an authorized and then translated Catholic version of the Bible, and people are killed over that issue. Churches are burned in Philadelphia in, in 1844 over that, that issue. Now, let's take a look at that image. Is that coming up here on the screens? Why don't you tell me what you see here? Because I learn something new every time I... Uh, look at these images and um, there's no right or wrong answer there's no way of using these images they're, they're, they are sources of a particular kind, we'll have to figure out how we might use them but they, um, they say all sorts of interesting things who, who, who's the author of this cartoon? Thomas Nast, and who's Thomas Nast? famous political cartoonist yeah, and anything else that he's known for? Or? He's, no, he's, he's known for, for what about Santa Claus? For the images in late 19th century Santa Claus. He's, he's also known for a whole series of viciously anti-Irish yeah. political cartoons, which in a way is spoiling it uh, by telling you that. But, 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 but certainly, if, if you were... Uh, y- there's no set perspective on these images, and that's the beauty of, of using them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, purification, yeah. Um, and I guess it's, the, the flip side would be saying those uh, crocs, uh, maybe, yeah, but um, let's, let's move on to, uh, well, let me say then, on this basis, economic and religious, uh, there's, there's only a number of reasons why native-born Americans were suspicious of or disliked uh, the, the Irish. Um, we've seen the economic and religious. More broadly and culturally, there's, there perceived laziness, their public drinking style, which came up in discussion this morning. You know, it's all very well to be in favor of keeping the the Sabbath uh, quiet uh, if you don't work six days a week. But if you work six days a week and you've one day off and you come from an immigrant culture where you might like to have a picnic or take a drink in the afternoon, uh, then there's a cultural uh, clash uh, there. Also, um, very strong association of the uh, Irish with criminality and with violence, uh, which I might talk to you more about after the break. Uh, but first, to move into the question of Simeon and other racial characterizations, um, there is a tendency in some of the uh, language and in a lot of the images uh, not just to, um, to portray the Irish as undesirable, uh, but to portray them as uh, inherently 
inferior, that there's something intrinsic to them, something inferior uh, about them uh, that can be correlated to their physical appearance. And that correlation between alleged intrinsic inferiority and physical appearance you know, takes us into the territory uh, uh, of uh, race uh, in some way. I'll give you just one quote, and then we'll put on some more images. Uh, George Templeton Strong, his uh, diarist, a sort of upper-class patrician New Yorker after the draft riots, describes the Irish as, and I quote, um, brutal, base, cruel, cowards, insolent as base. So brutal, base, cruel, cowards, and as insolent as base. And he says that these immigrants come from a land that is populated by creatures that crawl and eat dirt and poison every community they infest. They, one second, uh, they crawl and eat dirt and uh, poison every community they infest. Well, he obviously didn't know about St. Patrick because uh, the, the snakes were gone. Uh, but he's using language there that re- really is of a particular kind. And we're going to see that in a series of images now as well. So again, there's an awful lot going on in this image. I mean, what I particularly like, uh, what I'm hearing is... Uh, there's no right or wrong perspective. There's a way of running it, uh, using it to cut across the grain if you've got more information about the author and say, well, you know, oh, thank you, thank you. Um, is he uh, endorsing this or is he critiquing it? He is an immigrant. As far as I know, he's a German uh, immigrant. Uh, it's the question of the bottom rung is, 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 is always uh, uh, interesting. However, uh, I, I would point out another way of looking at that, which is to ask, well, where, where is this published? So what does that, does that tell us anything? Uh, the, uh, the, uh, this image and a lot of them we're looking at are published in Harper's or, or similar, which are, you know, um, well, what's Harper's, Harper's Weekly? Who's reading it? Uh, in the 19th century? What sort of publication is it? It's a a pretty highbrow magazine of opinion that would have been read by by, um, the urban upper middle class. That that actually tells us a lot. There's two ways of approaching this image. One is to forget the author and the place it was published. But the other is if it's screaming at you in the face and you can't suppress it and you know know who the artist is or you know where it's published. Nast is, is doing this sort of thing because it's uh, what, what his magazine is paying him for. And it's what his readers uh, are interested in reading. But guess who wouldn't be reading this? The Irish. And that's an important point I want to get to is, uh, in the later, is uh, the, the impact that this may have had on the Irish, given that they weren't aware of it. The, the population is absolutely tiny. About 300,000 Chinese come in, which is substantial, but it's mainly to the West Coast. and They come in to work in, in mining and then in railroads. Uh, but everybody all over the United States, in, in my research in the 1870s in particular, uh, I, I didn't encounter any organization or institution that didn't have a mandatory uh, anti-Chinese uh, plank in its platform. It's amazing. Uh, now, who? Uh, what happened to the Chinese ten years later? This is 1871. They're excluded. The first, so it's the first federal restriction law that Ch- Chinese contract labor, Chinese labor, is excluded. In the West, uh, where most of them live, who leads the agitation for that exclusion? The Irish. The Irish. Yeah, it's an Irish working class movement. 
And, and it's a classic uh, early case of the group that has one foot up, uh, you know, uh, first rung of the ladder, using the other foot to kick the other group down. It's, it's Irish immigrant workers who were accused of being strike breakers and working for low wages who lashed out at the Chinese for being strike breakers and working for low wages. Uh, got them uh, excluded and in so doing improved their own position in society. And that's how multi-immigrant societies often work. So how, how are the Irish portrayed in this image? They look subhuman. They don't have human features. Whereas if you look at the Chinese, he has more human features. Mm-hmm, than, mm-hmm. Than so there's a, a dehumanizing uh, element. There's a, a bestial element. What's in the background of the picture? Again, for clues, just uh, vi- colored orphan asylum. What's that? Does anyone know? Yeah. 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 The draft riots in 1863, which was largely an Irish affair. Uh, the Irish, bur- bur- the rioters, burned down a colored orphanage uh, asylum. Uh, thankfully, it had been evacuated before they did so. But that's a notorious incident uh, in a notorious event. Um, what's hanging from the tree? You're always, you're always going to see a noose. If, if you see a noose, you're, you're probably talking about the Irish. Now, the Irish were lynched in, in California when, when they went there, but they're also known for lynching others in these nativist cartoons. Let's look at a, another uh, image. This is a very early image, which, um, which I especially uh, dislike. Uh, I find it, find it quite disturbing, um, and it's it's not in the uh, it's not looking at the, these simian images, these ape-like uh, features that become more familiar around the 1870s. It's 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 very early. It's 20 years before. It's just around the time of the famine. Right when Anbinder is uh, is writing there, the chapter you read. Um, and there's, a, there's something quite quite uh, odd and disturbing about that. It's in Harper's again. It's a depiction of your average everyday Irish immigrant um, walking down, down Park Avenue. Uh, uh, what, do, what do you see? Half animal, half man, and you can't tell where where the divide is. I mean, it's it's just so. Uh, you know, the bestialization in this form is not the facial features, it's that there's no clear divide between beast and man. He's behind a donkey, yeah. Lower than a donkey, yeah. There's a very, very telling spatial arrangement in the, in the image. And certainly there's a hierarchy from, if it is African American male, it's a little vague, but from African American male through the two women to the donkey to the Irishman, and that's the uh, uh, descending descending order. Um, let me put on uh, this one. I'm going to take a look at a couple more, then we'll take a break, and then I'd like to maybe open up a conversation on it again. Um, this is, now this, interestingly, this is 30 years later, I'm jumping around a little bit, and it actually comes from uh, an English uh, magazine, uh, Judy, which is a counterpart of Punch, which is a more famous um, but this is this is a transatlantic uh, discourse. I mean, you know, the Irish are being portrayed in this way on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and again, you know, the, the, there's interesting things going on in this image. Some are, are 
just text and very clear. Some need a bit of interpretation. So, some are little historical clues that are of interest in themselves. Read in the United States. This, this is the British opinion of, of America. Um, you see, if you get three million people coming here after the famine and they believe that they're exiles and they've been banished by British uh, policy, uh, what the uh, British are afraid of, uh, the, the Times remarks in an editorial, is that the Irish problem will take on an American dimension. And they're right, because a lot of the, the money, arms, personnel, guns for Irish independence then comes out of New York City over the next 50 years. So this, this is bred in the United States. This is what happens to the Irish. I mean, they're bad enough to begin with, but this is what happens to them if they're, if they're let, let run free in America. By this time, dynamite campaigns have started. Um, London has been bombed, uh, funded out of New York uh, by Irish-American radicals. Um, so this is their take on a serious problem. The, just to fill in a couple of gaps, you have um, the man, actually, in the bonnet, is holding the baby uh, is the British Prime Minister William Gladstone, who is uh, handing a pill, which which is a you know a phrase for making for appeasement, right? Making a, a conciliatory gesture, a concession to violence. It says on the pill, and he's giving that to the terrorist uh, Irish American dynamite skunk bred in the United States. Uh, and let me just bring up one more because uh, I, I sense the need for a break arising. Um, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, didn't that come up as a <laughs> little earlier? Uh, and this is Thomas Nast. It's 1867, so it's halfway through the period, um, those decades that are the key decades. So any thoughts on what, on what you're seeing there? Did I put up the... Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Fifth Avenue again, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess by now the point about simian features is clear enough that we don't have to detect simian features uh, in there. I might just draw your attention to the left, top left corner of the image. Um, well, two things. They're wearing sashes. You see they're wearing sashes. Um, that's to give it a more formal political sense. It's not just St. Patrick's Day, but secret society uh, traditions that existed. But top left uh, corner, um, no, I'm sorry, top right, uh, here, the guy who's getting ready to fire something out of, out of his left hand. Do you know who that is? Or, or no, I've given it away. The guy, the guy that's holding something in his left hand. Could be a bomb. I've heard a bomb, a Bible, a bottle of whiskey. Uh, but what I think it is, is uh, a piece of Irish confetti, also known as a cobblestone. Um, I put up one final image uh, on the screen. Uh, most of the evidence we have is directed uh, at uh, men. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons uh, for that. I, I think the principal reason is that there is an association between uh, the Irish and violence in the 19th century. Uh, and, which I'll talk about in a second, but this is the one image I've encountered uh, uh, extending uh, the idea of bestialization uh, to women as well. And again, it's, it's, uh, it's not exactly subtle. Um, you have uh, Florence Nightingale as, as the flower of uh, English beauty, and then you have her immediate Irish counterpart, uh, Bridget McBruiser. Um, <laughs> 
I'm not sure that there's much to say about that. Um, um, as for the prejudice directed against the Irish, uh, what we might do in the little time we have remaining is try and figure out the extent to which that might be called uh, racial as well. Were the, in other words, just to pose it as a question, were the Irish victims of racism uh, uh, might be a good question. And a lot would depend on what we mean by uh, race. Uh, uh, people in the 19th century used that term. They didn't necessarily mean the same as what we mean. If you, if you uh, encounter the word race uh, in the sources, uh, chances are they're referring to people or nation, the Irish race, the German race, the English race. It's, it's, it's not meant to be uh, much beyond that. Occasionally, they are dealing with something more like what we would call racism. Uh, there are um, sciences, or what we would now call pseudosciences, uh, for example, uh, phrenology, where you can measure a person's intelligence by the bumps on their head, uh, physiognomy more broadly, just that you can infer their character from their physical appearance. We see that in all of these cartoons. Um, the form of prejudice uh, we see here had a relatively brief heyday, uh, and I gave it the bookends of 1850 to 1880, roughly, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that it is in those three decades that we see the worldwide dispersal of three million Irish people, most of them to the United States. And I think these images and the nativism that uh, they embody is really uh, expresses um, shock uh, and uh, an attempt to adjust to the presence of these uh, uh, strange people. Uh, Fear of strangers is xenophobia. Fear of strangers, it's almost, almost there. So how do we make sense of these newcomers in, in, in our midst? The other thing uh, which may have occurred to you as you were watching it is that it's in this period, uh, 1859 precisely, uh, that uh, Charles Darwin uh, publishes on the origin of species. Although he doesn't talk about uh, man in that book, uh, it becomes... Uh, pretty widespread uh, conversation directly after the publication of that book that, um, uh, to use the shorthand, that men are descended from apes. Uh, and I guess you could look at this, uh, these images as uh, asserting, well, if that is so, then at least some men at least are uh, more closely uh, descended from apes than others. So uh, the question then is we... we <coughs> We can uh, describe Irish racism against uh, blacks and Chinese. Uh, we can describe the overall position of uh, blacks and Chinese in American society uh, in very concrete terms. Uh, chattel slavery, ownership of yourself by another, or in the Asian case, uh, ineligibility to become a citizen. You cannot become a citizen of this country. And after 1881, if you're Chinese, you cannot even come into this country. After 1907, if you're Japanese, you cannot come into this country. After 1917, if you're Asian, you cannot come into this country. So it, within that framework, what I've I mentioned uh, before we break for lunch, is sometimes in view, if, if, you know, I guess it, with mainly the classroom setting, uh, okay, blacks and uh, Asians, uh, um, sort of racism uh, to the Irish. All right, thank you.